Hello, my fellow plant people. I am very excited to introduce you to today's happy hour guest, Seven Song. He's a director and teacher of the Northeast School of Botanical Medicine for 31 years, and he's also a herbal practitioner and the director of holistic medicine at the Ithaca Free Clinic, and has been studying plants, people, and herbal medicines for over 42 years now. I'd like to welcome Seven Song. Hello, Alexandra. All right, so with this happy hours, as many people have known by now, we are enjoying a quote-unquote botanical drink. So Seven Song, would you like to talk a little bit about what we are enjoying today? Uh, we're drinking peppermint tea, which is mentha ex pepperita. Uh, the X in mentha ex pepperita means that it's a hybrid, so it usually doesn't come true from seed. Um, but it comes true from vegetation. Ah. So, uh, like I, I put a couple of peppermint plants. Uh, I have a pretty, I have a very wet backyard. Uh, it's, it's kind of, it's a lot of yard there. And uh, it's been just growing here and there. And I was telling Alexandra uh, previously, one of the interesting things about peppermint is that the smell is not meant to entice or not a, kind of originally, whatever that might mean. <laughs> uh, the, the smell is meant to repel and it's one of the plants that deer will just not eat. Like I have a lot of deer here and they eat a lot of different plants, but they will they don't ever touch peppermint or spearmint. So it's funny that we humans, it's a very popular tea peppermint. I would say it's the top five things that people drink uh, plant-wise. But yet it's a deterrent uh, in nature for most other uh, organisms to eat. Actually, organisms, the wrong word, mammals. I'm not sure about Leptoptera or other things that might eat it. I think a lot of uh, insects also tend to avoid the peppermint smell. I've seen things about planting peppermint around gardens oh, right. as, a, as a gardening tactic to help deter away different pests, quote-unquote. Um, and ra rabbits, I know, don't like it, which I would consider, I highly consider putting peppermint around tomato plants because my rabbits would always get <laughs> in, <laughs> into my tomatoes. So that was always a battle. And, and then peppermint, you know, so I, it's, it's fun to just take apart words. I mean, why is it called peppermint? Like, what is peppery about this mint? Uh, so spearmint, it's because the leaves are shaped a little bit like, like use your imagination, like a spear, uh, meaning that kind of angular or arrow shaped. Mm. Um, but peppermint, because of course, it's piquant. It has a strong flavor. So not quite like black pepper or red peppers, but it has a strong piquant flavor. And so a peppermint. I never even thought about that. Yeah, uh, common names always can be so fun because they can be. be very practical or look like stuff um, and just based off of style alone. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into it. So, in the broad realm of botany, plant science, all of the good stuff that encompasses the world of plants, how do you classify yourself? So I, I would describe myself mostly as a clinical herbalist and also as a botanist. But since my primary profession is teaching herbal medicine, uh, that's, that's usually my introduction. Sometimes, I mean, when I tell people I'm an herbalist, it just gets so many responses. The one nice thing is ever since cannabis has become more legal or recognized or easy to assess in the past, when I said I'm an herbalist, people always thought that cannabis or marijuana, as it was once called, or a pot or whatever you want to call it, 
uh, that that was what I dealt with. And I, it's not a part of my life. It's just not a plant that I really have that much association with. And so finally, now when I say herbalist, it's not the first thing that comes to people's <laughs> mind. So as a clinical herbalist, it means that I treat people um, that are outside my, uh, my family and, uh, and friends and community. Uh, well, maybe communities included. I work at the Ithaca Free Clinic, and when I'm one of the many founders there. And, um, but I've been working there now. We've been open for 16 years. And so I've just seen a, a large, many different people with many different health issues over the years. So that's kind of the clinical aspect of it. And then as a teacher, uh, it's not just... So plants are a very important part of teaching about plants, meaning how to identify them properly using a flora, how to you know, use a dichotomous key, how to gather plants with doing less harm to the environment, uh, how to prepare them, and of course, how to use them. But also, I teach a lot of the other sciences that are important to know if you're going to do healthcare, such as physiology and pathophysiology, disease, and the way the body, basically more about function than structure. But if you were in this room, you would see that we're surrounded by models, anatomical models, uh, because currently I'm trying to be, get better and understanding all my muscle groups. You know, I start off with the rotator cuff, which is the thing, basically the muscles that attach the, your arm to your torso, uh, because that often goes bad on people. And then I just started, I just bought these muscle models and other models. So uh, they're really great for demonstration. But frankly, I use them for myself for learning. That's awesome. Yeah. Always so much more to learn. There's always so much. <laughs> I feel like every time I just start to really get good at understanding something, I feel like I just dive into a whole nother realm of questions and things to learn. And <laughs> Yeah, the past few days I've been studying fibromyalgia. And so, you know, like you can describe it pretty simply with fibromyalgia is, you know, a certain kind of undiagnosable muscle pain that causes fatigue and depression. But then you're like, then you start looking at like, how is the central nervous system? Because... Clearly, it's got to be some kind of central nervous system component, and then you, it's just exactly what you're saying. Then there's a whole other avenue of study to go, which is fantastic. In some ways, so I'm 65 years old, and the reason I say that is because when I was young, all we had access to was books and libraries. I actually, I, I could walk to the library you know, where, I, where I was young. And so I wonder, like, so now if I want to learn, like if I'm studying fibromyalgia, there is all these avenues I can study. I can go watch mm -hmm. videos on YouTube. I can, there's, you know, university lectures I can listen to. And none of that, like when I was, because I've always been a studier, had access to. And I wonder, like, would it have been better for me? Because the problem is, would I have ever gone outside, right, with all this access to information? <laughs> uh, and I'm, you know, I, you know, even though I grew up in the heart of the suburbs of Long Island, um, I still was in the streets playing with friends a lot. And I do feel, I, when I, I feel bad for kids that are just always inside, if that's, you know, because that's like, it's easy to be with social media and mm -hmm. stuff. On the other hand, though, it would have been amazing to think, well, I'm interested in the Gila monsters, which I'm interested in. <laughs> and they're a, kind, they're, a, they're a venomous lizard that lives in the Southwest. And would be, you know, go online, watch videos of them, but it was not accessible. Yeah, it's crazy how so much has been brought, both good and bad, by right. the access to the internet and just videos on videos of different things. It's definitely really cool to watch Gila monsters, but also <laughs> at the same time, you know, going outside and bringing people and, and having this love for nature that just comes from um, much exposure to being surrounded by the beauty and just being able to take that in. Um, and that blend is 
is definitely something that I have been searching for. And <laughs> I'm sure many listeners have been, oh, maybe I should get off TikTok and stop watching these reruns of people playing these video games I don't even care about <laughs> <laughs> and get outside. But yeah, I definitely try to do that myself. Well, awesome. Thanks for all of that great information. And it's, it's amazing to see how learning and and everything and how things have been shaping over time for sure and so today we wanted to talk a little bit about plant taxonomy because as an herbalist you obviously know a lot about plants and how to gather them and and what ones are good which ones maybe aren't as good for you Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about what plant taxonomy means to you sure I, i feel like i want to prologue this by saying that many herbalists don't know that much about plants. Mm. If they know, so you could be an herbalist. This is true. I mean, you could be an herbalist that suggests plants or buys prepared medicines, uh, and that exists in, in kind of a negative or pejorative parlance. Often people, I don't really use this term, but we'll call those folks green bottle medicine, mm. in other words. But they're in, in my world, they're kind of... They're, they're not that common. Most herbalists I know will have some connections to plants. But there's, there's less herbalists, at least in the U.S., actually in most places I've traveled, uh, that are also botanists. Mm. Uh, so when you ask me, like, you know, what do I call myself? I, I call myself a clinical herbalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it would be followed soon by botanist and naturalist. Uh, but I'm definitely a self-taught botanist. But I can key out. I can't key out with the best of them. But like, <laughs> if you go below that level, I'm, I, I mean, I enjoy keying out plants. Uh-huh. I, I like so you know, for me, like if I go someplace, my I I search places to visit if they have a flora that I could read, mm. meaning a dichotomous key, so I can make positive identification, and then take photos of those plants. To me, that's like some of my favorite stuff to do. I'll spend hours trying to key out plants. But lots of places don't have floras and languages that I can read, so it's difficult. Mm-hmm. So taxonomy is the science of of putting organisms into classifications. So that's basically what taxonomy is. So, for instance, humans are are very closely related to chimpanzees, monkeys, and bonobos and apes. Uh, you know, we diverge from them. I, I, I don't know my years, you know, many millions of years ago. We're also related to worms, but on a tree, if you drew that in a tree, our relationship to worms is much more tenuous. But we all, you know, basically life probably comes from just a few sources, if not just one source on Earth. So plants have, so as a taxonomist, well, not a taxonomist, I'm a botanist who, who likes to know plants by their botanical names. So taxonomy is important to me. Because in order to gather, so I'm making medicines from living organisms and I, you know, on the planet that are part of an ecosystem. So one thing is I want to do like the least amount of harm while gathering plants. Mm -hmm. And I like to gather them myself because then I know that I can do it in a, in a, in the way that I feel is comfortable and reasonably ethical. Mm -hmm. But frankly, I just like to key out plants. And, and, you know, when I go and travel, that whole thing about me traveling and keying out plants it has nothing to do with gathering them. It has everything just to do with keying them out, meaning identifying them positively. So taxonomy is important to me uh, so that I can make positive attribution. I can know exactly what plant that I am looking at, mm-hmm. especially 
if I'm going to gather that plant and then give it to people for medicines because the chemicals in plants are not the same. They're not steadfast. Like if I gather a peppermint near a very watery spot that might have an insect that nibbles on it, and I gather peppermint from an area that's very dry and has no predators, uh, that might mean there would be slightly different constituents because mm. plants make chemicals to respond to their environment. The chemicals in plants are not a coincidence, right? They are protective or attractive to other, you know, to other organisms, or there's, they're important for them to reproduce and stay alive and spread. So even if I'm gathering peppermint, Right, so a pretty easy plant to recognize, particularly by its aroma, but also by its flowers and the shape and color of its leaves and stems and flowers. I want to make sure it's at least the right plant because it's the variable that I can control. Mm-hmm. I can't control the other variables. I, don't, I won't know like, how active the constituents are, how much menthol this plant has. And I don't know that much about menthol, but maybe there's some variation within menthol constituents because it's, you know, so... So, yeah, so it comes, pretty, it comes pretty down to me. I also want to say this. So I've been, I run an herb school, and I teach how to use a dichotomous key. And so every year when I interview people for the school, everybody says that they're really interested in learning how to identify plants. And it is the least favorite part of my class for almost everybody because it takes a certain, like you have, it's a lot of different, it's a lot of new words. It could be very confusing, like, is that strigose or is that pubescent, which are two different forms of hairiness that are pretty close. <laughs> and so students actually uh, often, if it's confusing and time-consuming. So And flipping through a lot of pages. And, right, and carrying, <laughs> well, these days you don't always have to carry a big book, but, you know, we use Khaleesi and Cronquist, which is a medium-sized flora that covers a big part of the Northeast. Mm-hmm. Actually, it goes down to Virginia, up to Nova Scotia, and over to Illinois. So... But I, I believe that if we're going to gather plants, we should be able to properly identify them and not, not in, a, in a non-technical field guide like Newcomb's Wildflower Guide, which mm-hmm. is great to learn on. Mm-hmm. But then if you're going to gather plants, it's probably more important to know, like, are you sure that that's, you know, mentha ex pepperita or is it mentha arvensis or is it mentha spicata? Frankly, those are pretty easy to tell apart, but other plants are not so easy. Yeah, it's definitely... And now I have... I've taken one class where I've had to go out and, and key out a bunch of different plants and, and learn about that. And I started off with the Newcombs Wildflower Guide and uh, Peterson's, uh, pa- Patterson's? Peterson's. Peterson's. Yeah, the, for the trees and shrubs. And then I also had my big books of Pennsylvania, right where I was from. And it's crazy, the, just even the, the size difference of the textbooks, uh, where Newcombs is a, as a pocket field right. guide where you can pretty easily throw it in a book bag or carry it out with you. But I would definitely not be carrying around my Plants of Pennsylvania book uh, on a 20-mile hike, <laughs> unless if I wanted a good workout, that is. Right. <laughs> right. And I've also found, and I know you have done a good fair amount of traveling, that field guides are less reliable in other areas than um, than some areas. Like growing up in Pennsylvania and going to college there where I first started to learn about plant taxonomy, we had Newcombs and, and all of the, the Plants of Pennsylvania book that it was very helpful. But when I moved to Oklahoma, because the field guides were 
I can't, I couldn't use new combs anymore. I had to find a new one and I just could not find one that I, I thought to be decent enough. Um, and a lot of it was more passed down knowledge from people and not necessarily written out. Or if it was written out, it would be in very small, short, kind of like printout pages um, of a bunch of different uh, plants and with a, a large variety of grass diversity. And there was no grass diversity that, um, grass diversity guide for taxonomy that I could find, even though. Um, I know that there is definitely people out there who have spent a very long time learning about all these different types of, of grasses. Um, so if anyone knows a good grass uh, taxonomy key from Oklahoma, I'm, I'm dying to know because I could not find one out there. But have you run into any similar problems like that? Yeah, that's common. So it's changing. Mm -hmm. More states are, you know, are having people do them. There's actually a field guide. So the two counties north, I live in Tompkins County. And the two counties just north of here, in fact, you know, one of those counties is like out of 10 miles north of me, uh, has a field guide. So there's actually mm. a technical field guide for, Kai I forget the name is of the Kai Cayuga. No, it's not Cayuga. Anyway, the two counties north of us have mm -hmm. it, which is great because any plant that goes one county north of me is going to grow here. Mm. So that's the opposite. Um, there are, but some places are kind of a desert. Well, that's a bad term because that's a very lush, it's very... <laughs> Interesting ecosystems, not lush. So, for instance, in Oklahoma, you have to use prairie field guides. Mm -hmm. So, Oklahoma doesn't have an Oklahoma's not all prairie, uh, not just due to deprairization. <laughs> yeah, so I, when I just went to the Midwest, it could be a little bit more difficult because a lot of the Midwestern states, and I'm putting Oklahoma here in a Midwestern state, uh, don't have the Oklahomans would, would fight you on that. Yeah. They're a true Southern state. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I put them in the Midwest category too. Sorry, uh, Oklahomans out there. <laughs> so you could send, if you have any responses, just send them to Alexandra about how you feel Oklahoma's. But it is partly a prairie state. And, uh, and so the prairie states, it's a better term than Midwestern states, mm -hmm. the prairie states, uh, you know, which were typified by grasslands before they were changed into farms, uh, often don't have separate field guides like for Kansas or Iowa, parts of Missouri. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are, Missouri actually has excellent field guides. It, there's actually a three volume series for Missouri alone that, you know, very encompassing. Uh, so when you go to Oklahoma, basically you have to get a prairie field guide. Mm -hmm. um, and then other places are surprising. So I went to Nicaragua and worked there. I didn't, not as a botanist, but as an herbalist. And in Nicaragua, uh, there's actually an online technical field guide mm. that's pretty precise but it's in Spanish, and it's not easy to translate. So, for instance, if you translate calyx, which is a part of a flower, it comes out as wolf. And so, oh. after a while, like, you learn the different parts, but it was more difficult. Uh, but, you know, as long as I was connected to the Internet, I could key out plants mm -hmm. uh, in Nicaragua. And then Costa Rica uh, has, actually, Costa Rica has some field. Anyway, different areas, people have invested time and money and have made field guides in other areas, they just don't exist. Mm -hmm. And have you used at all any of the online, like iNaturalist, where you can take a picture and scan it in, or anything like that? I have, so for some, I don't know why, I, I haven't used iNaturalist, which is, I mean, I, I think of myself as a naturalist, and I guess in the, you know, in the first person positive, iNaturalist, so, <laughs> 
But I, what I actually, so I recently went to, last year I went to Puerto Rico, which has a lot of different flora than here. And also I went to Puerto Rico during a time where there's not many things in flower. Mm-hmm. And basically, if you're going to key out plants, you need flowers. I mean, we talk about taxonomy. Taxonomy is based on relationships, and relationships are usually based on sexual characteristics because mm-hmm. that's how it you know, a seed becomes a plant and that plant makes seeds and maybe those plants cross and make a new plant. So for most plants, in order to make positive identification, you need flowers. Mm. And so when I went to Puerto Rico, I got very lucky and spent, I I met one of the uh, botanists who just knew almost every plant where we went. Um, But also what I did utilize was the Facebook page, Mm. Plants of Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. And I would say that probably I got six, I probably sent in you know, over the course of time, I probably mm-hmm. sent at least 60 photos to that Facebook page. I'm not really sure how many. But anyway, um, I would say <clears throat> uh, at least 50 to 60% of the time I got uh, the correct genus and species. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, the iNaturalist is very similar where you could post pictures for those who are not familiar with it. You could post pictures and based off of some software tools, it can help Uh, lead you towards identification. Now, it's not always right, so they do have double checkers um, who are just people who are very interested in plants and and know maybe a little bit more than the average Joe about plant taxonomy and can go through and correct it. And actually, as one of my final projects for a class I did, I I took an area near me and took the iNaturalist, all of the sightings on there, and correctly identified and confirmed if that was the correct species or not. So it's a lot of citizen science, um, and you know you can get some more or less than that. But um, I think it's a pretty good tool and, and a good start, uh, especially for people who are are starting out um, looking at that. So I would love to hear your thoughts on what you think basic understandings of plant functional groups and how they can really aid people, whether they're in the field or or foraging and and just kind of a. Uh, what do you mean by plant functional groups? When you are beginning keying out, uh, at least the way that I was taught, we were taught to key to different functional groups. So that higher classification, not necessarily to species all the way, but maybe to family or genus. Um, and um, basic understandings like the teachings from Botany in a Day, which is a great resource for anyone who doesn't know. Uh, Botany in a Day is a fantastic book. I highly recommend it to a lot of people who are just starting out on botany, but it can help you learn the different basics of the plants, um, but not necessarily key them to species. Yeah, so I think the the functional group that's most important um, is a classification group would be family. Mm-hmm. Because it's, you, you can, so like up here in the Northeast, there's maybe 30, 40 families. And if you know them, I don't know, I don't really know percentages here, but you would know a lot of different plants. Like if you know your Asteraceae, Caryophyllaceae. Fabrigaceae. Yeah, Brassicaceae, Fabaceae. Oh, by the way, a, um, in the United States, not in all places, the A-C-E-A-E, which is pronounced differently by different people, um, says that it's a family. So mm-hmm. the reason that these things sound alliterative is because ACE or ACEA um, says that the plant, that's the family of a plant. It's actually very useful that way. Nothing else is, is usually structured so clearly. Mm-hmm. So if you know like the Rose ACE, the Rose family, 
Uh, there's lots of them. You would have like things like GMs and roses, um, fill a, a metal sweet, which doesn't look quite the same. But there are many strawberries, apples, cherries, almonds, but, I know, but also a lot of wild plants. And so once you know, like that's a pretty simple family to recognize often, usually showy flowers, five petals, um, many, many stamen, often many styles. You don't have to know what these parts are, but they're pretty, you know, if you look at a rose, and a non-hybridized rose, many of the other members look like that. So why that's important is because when you, have a, when you have a technical key, if you don't know the plant at all, you have to start at the very beginning. And that just takes a while. Once you know the family, you can just jump to the family and you've saved yourself a lot of time keying it out. And so I'm gonna switch this to herbal medicine. Sometimes plants, that, when you're in a very large group like a family, so there's hundreds of plants, I don't know the number, but there are many plants in the rose family here and they don't act, you know, so none of them are poisonous. That's the only thing they have in common. Mm. Some of them are used for healing tissues. Others of them are used for anxiety. Others are just foods. Um, and so the problem with families, as far as being an herbalist, is you can't tell the medicinal use. When you get down to genus, sometimes you can tell mm. the medicinal uses. But you need to know a species because, you know, species is the same word as specific. And so, like I said previously with peppermint, species will vary in constituents from one area to another by, you know, by a small degree at least. Um, but it's the, it's the only control, as I said previously, at, a, at the genus level. Like with, so peppermint, which is the family, the mint family, the Lamiaceae, or formerly the Labiate. So the mint family, there's no way you're going to know medicinal uses because you have things like skullcap, which is sedative, and you things have like peppermint, which is carminative or just aromatic, or motherwort, which is used for very different reasons um, uh, than other mints would be, uh, the aromatic mints. So, you know, that would include lavender and rosemary and sage and thyme. So it's helpful to key out plants by knowing what their family is, but medicinally, mm. you can't get much. And then, so, the, so peppermint, is in the family Lamiaceae. Its genus is Mentha, and they're pretty different. So the mints, there are no poisonous mints that I know of, um, but like the difference between spearmint and peppermint is actually pretty different. Like the constituents in them are quite different, or from apple mint. So in the genus level, that's what Mentha is, the genus, um, it's still not, you, you can't be sure that everything that's in the genus Mentha is medicinally useful. On the species level, Mentha ex pepperita, there's the pepper again, pepperita means pepper, or little pepper. Uh, you have a better chance of being able to use them medicinally. But anyway, you can key out plants, learn your families. And Tom, Tom Appel's book, um, Botany in a Day, is a great way to start off. Great. All right, uh, we're wrapping up here. So uh, one question I always like to ask everybody is, what advice would you give to either yourself or a student as a young plant enthusiast, just overarching? <laughs> I usually get so I usually get this question as an herbalist. So with, with saying more as a botanist person, um, I would say just start keying out plants <laughs> because like it's it's like it's a it's possible, but it takes time to learn the skill. So I would say as soon as you can get get off your newcombs and get into Gleason and Cronquist and use a technical flora, because there are. 
there it's just it's a patience game and the sooner you start learning them uh, but you have to want to do it. I mean, that's it. You have yeah. to want. You don't want to key up plants. It's, they're just they're just horrible books. <laughs> they're no fun at all. Um, so I, I like it. Like I, I'm a categorizer by nature. Like I think, oh, what is that lizard? What is that insect? You know, or even when in health, you know, in health questions, you know, is that a flu? Is that a cold? Is that COVID? You know, what are the symptoms of that person? So I tend to be a, a reductionist, deductionist, right? And wanting to know specifics. Um, so I think that would be it. And of course, you know, just like everything like this, you know, you have to put the book down at times. If it's warm enough and dry enough, you know, lay down and just enjoy the plants around us. Uh, you know, because who knows how long they're going to be here, says this very cynical herbalist botanist. <laughs> Actually, the plants are going to be here way longer than humans. So there's that. <laughs> I love that advice, and it does make me feel better about my very long walks around the lake when I'm trying to procrastinate on my studies. <laughs> I'm going to start telling that to myself. All right, well, tell us a little bit about what you have going on. What's what's the future look like for you? Well, it kind of depends who gets elected in November. <laughs> that's good. Um, so that's a political message without saying whom. Please vote in November, and I want this left in because I think it's I'm talking about citizen scientists. Yes, there are there are some people who get elected who are more pro science than others, and I like having those people in. No politician at any higher level is great. Off of the off of the politics. Um, so I've been working on a free herbal database. Um, I think a lot of these so on as herbal right now. If there's about three or four inches of snow outside, I'm not really keeping any plants out. So uh, more indoors right now. And I've been working for a few years on a free online database um, and just very, very slowly starting to fill in uh, because I find a lot of the information about herbal medicine online uh, not very useful. You can, find, you can find some useful stuff, but a lot of it is pretty terrible, frankly. Uh, and it's geared towards selling rather than promoting real mm -hmm. positive health. So, you know, a lot of the elderberry stuff is just inaccurate, right? It's just like mm -hmm. people, because elderberries are pretty inexpensive, so people make a lot of medicines, they're popular, uh, but it's more important to kind of have a better understanding of how elder might actually work uh, in illness in somebody's body. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one thing. Again, I am surrounded by anatomy models, so I'm, I'm really trying to get my skeletal stuff down and my muscle stuff and, and also organ but more anatomical than physiological um, so those are two big projects I work at the Ithaca Free Clinic um, and I work there once a week uh, one of the things I'm proudest of I'm one of the many founders uh, of the Ithaca Free Clinic which is an integrated free clinic here at Ithaca New York um, where you know there's doctors and nurses and herbalists, they're usually like one. I'm making sound like you to come there with lots of them. Like last night, there was me on staff, an herbalist, there was a, one doctor and one nurse to, to check vitals as people came in. Um, so I, I see people from all over because we do telehealth. That is something if you're interested in seeing an herbalist. Uh, all consultations are free. If you live locally, uh, the herbs are also free. We give herbs to people. Uh, we never, just, but we never said, uh, send them anywhere. They, that's just too much for us. So, um, but that's a big part of my life. Is you know, so a big, so the problem with herbal medicine often is that it could be pretty expensive mm -hmm. uh, when you go to buy it. And so there's really a trade-off. Like if you had a headache, if you bought, let's say, willow tincture, right? I, I'm not suggesting willow tincture for headache, but 
you know, it is the precursor of aspirin, has salicylates that could be, you know, synthesized into acetylsalicylic acid, aspirin. Um, but if you bought a willow tincture, it'll probably cost you $10, and you could buy aspirin for maybe a dollar. You could probably buy 250 aspirin for like $4, <laughs> and you're off the shelf. And so, uh, why am I saying that? <laughs> I guess I'm saying I want to make herbal medicine accessible to people. And so, we give free herbal medicine at the free clinic to people who can pick it up, and also just to make suggestions for people so they can make their own medicines. Uh, because I would like herbal medicine to be a real part of people's lives and not kind of a fringe medicine. But on the same hand, you have to understand, you know, uh, when conventional medicines, you know, pharmaceuticals, surgeries, chemotherapies, uh, all those things are also extremely important. And we, we're very fortunate to live in a world that has those as options. We're not so fortunate to have a terrible healthcare system in the United States in the sense of expense, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, but the options, you know, have, have saved, you know, who knows how many lives, like so many. Mm -hmm. So one thing I'm saying right now is, yes, I am an herbalist. And I'm also saying, yes, I'm an herbalist who is glad to live in a world with a lot of uh, conventional or modern, modern seems like an outdated word, uh, medicines. Um, I just, so I wish we didn't have to have free clinics. I mm -hmm. wish that medicine, including herbal medicine, was easily available to people at a reasonable price. Uh, so that's, that's a big part. Also, I run an herb school. And I'm starting to, <laughs> I took this year off. I'm going to teach again next year. So I, I'm now in my mid-60s. And I'm starting to think, like, what do I want to do with my time and how mm -hmm. do I devote it? You know, I've run an herb school now for 30 years. Uh, so uh, what, what next? And it's always been in person. And I think it will, and maybe I'll do some stuff online in the future. But I like in person. I like people. Well, sometimes. I like some people some of the time. <laughs> uh, but mostly I like all my students. Awesome. All right. So thank you, Alessandra. It's great uh, to bring more botany into the world. I mean... I am a plant enthusiast, to say the <laughs> least. Uh, if this if this was uh, visual, uh, you know, you, if you my house, like especially downstairs, I just have a large apothecary. But a lot, you know, I don't think of it as just herbal medicine. I think about plants. When people say herbs, often I want to change the word and say plants, right? Yeah. Because herbs kind of has a connotation like a garden, garden plants, or just used as medicine. But these are plants, like they are living organisms with a genus and a species, and we all need to know their families. So Great. thank you, Alexandra. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for all of you listeners out there. Uh, if you want to stay updated, join our Instagram page at the Happy Botanist Podcast. And um, Seven Song, you have an Instagram page. You want to plug your handle? Uh, <laughs> I have. So I use old people's um, social media. So I'm on Facebook. Uh, under my, so my name is Seven Song, but it's at, on Facebook. It's spelled out as Seven Song. Seven Song. So S E V E N S O N G. Said again. And I think on Instagram it's just Seven Song. Um, Eventually, I'll become on TikTok. I'll probably have to come on TikTok just as like there's something else that's newer and better, and then I'll slowly move into that. <laughs> Great. So make sure to follow us if you'd like to stay updated. And make sure to hit that bell uh, for more updates and get those notifications when the new episodes are dropped. As always, thanks to Cold Brew for our lovely song intro. Check him out. 
Thanks to Gabby Moffitt, the artist behind our lovely cover arts. Links to both these cool people and to Seven Song are going to be in the show notes. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.